Will, did you really make two and a half million last year? Uh, sure. How did you spend it all? That was quite quickly. You know, you learn to spend what's in your pocket. Two and a half million goes quickly? All right, let's see. So the tax man takes half up front, so you're left with one and a quarter. My mortgage takes another 300 grand. I sent 150 home for my parents, you know, keep them going. So what's that? 800. All right, 800. Spent 150 on a car, about 75 on restaurants, probably 50 on clothes. I put 400 away for a rainy day. That's smart. Yeah, as it turns out, because it looks like the storm's coming. Still got 125. Yeah, well, I did spend $76,520 on hookers, booze, and dances. But mainly hookers. $76,500? I was a little shocked initially, but then I realized I could claim most of it back as entertainment. It's true.
Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, folks. Uh, this is episode 58 of uh, Dude and a Monkey. Uh, I am Mark Foster, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host... Ian Loring, hey guys. Uh, and today we're looking at the new Terry Gilliam film, uh, The Zero Theorem. Uh, we're not looking at Under the Skinks, we're going to look at that next week, aren't we, Ian? Indeed, yes, because it's actually playing Cardiff um, as if by some miracle the uh, scheduling gods have deemed that Wales can have it. I know, you lucky, lucky people, you. Um, we're also going to chat some one old, one new, um, and we're going to chat some trailers, questions, other bits, and we're going to start our new marathon, which is entitled When Ian and Mark Met Rob. Uh, it is, of course, a Rob Ryder marathon, uh, which uh, we, we were going to call the uh, Rob Ryderthon, uh, but then at that, the uh, other name just came to me in a flash of inspiration. That's it. That's, that's my one flash of inspiration I'll have this week. Um, that's my one good idea, and it's fucking gone. Um, so, yeah, um, catch us on um, at, at Dude and Monkey on Twitter. Uh, email us at DudeandMonkey well, at gmail.com. Uh, anything other to add, Ian, before um, I throw us in there? Uh, no, dude, apart from the fact that I'm absolutely terrified about Olympiaco- uh, United versus Olympiacos, and I'm kind of glad I'm going to miss the first half, but uh, uh, apart yeah. from that. Yeah, that, to be honest, if I were you, I'd be a little bit terrified as well. Fucking right. Moy's out. Sorry, Moy's out. <laughs> Um, right, so um, we'll get straight in then. Ian, uh, what, what trailers have you seen this past week? Okie dokie. So um, I, haven't, I haven't seen too many as far as I can remember, if I'm honest. Because um, I, I, I know there was a, tra- a new trailer for Amazing Spider-Man 2, but it's just like I've already seen about half of that film just in the marketing so far. So I'm, uh, I'm not really all that bothered about actually watching that trailer. But um, I did, though, however, watch the new international trailer for Godzilla, which... Um, I don't know, was short but sweet. Um, I'm still very much looking forward to that film, so that's all I've got about to say about, uh, say about that, really. And I uh, watched the trailer for Get On Up, which is the James Brown biopic. We actually talked about the trailer on 35mm Heroes. Uh, looks very generic biopic to me. Um, yeah. Not really into that at all. Um, I actually can't think of anything else, mate. I'm sorry, I gen- genuinely... I, I, we talked about Annie last week, didn't we? We did indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I've got a few that, that, that I saw. Uh, oh, cool. Okay. So the trailer for the Maze Runner, um, which is, yeah, it looks like um, the sort of film that's going to, the franchise that maybe will take over from, uh, or will run alongside the Hunger Games a little bit. It, it's got that kind of aesthetic to look to it. But what I will say is uh, it, it, looks, it looks like it's going to be thoroughly kind of entertaining family fun, uh, based on a very popular um, team um, novel series, so it kind of ties in with that. Uh, but backstage like doesn't look doesn't look terrible. Uh, looks like it could be quite you know quite interesting. Um, saw the trailer for the Signal, uh, which seems to be getting a little bit of buzz behind it. Um, Lawrence Fishburne starring kind of alien sci-fi one, but there's there seems to be more to it than than that. Um, Looks very, very good, actually, to be honest, the trailer. Um, I'm very, very much sort of looking forward to that, just based on that. Um, and then a film called Kid Cannabis, uh, which looks like it's going to be a... Um, 
the idea of the film is you've got a, a college dropout kid who goes to Canada and starts importing uh, weed from Canada um, to, to sell in the uh, States. Uh, it looks like it might be alright. You've got Ron Perlman there. Uh, I'm always up for a bit of Ron Perlman. Um, another one, 13 Sins, randomly also stars uh, Ron Perlman. Uh, horror film uh, looks like it's, the idea of it is a guy gets a phone call uh, from somebody who is going to uh, ask him to do 13 things. Uh, each one will get more difficult and more dangerous, but each one will be worth more money as it goes along. The trailer well, seems that sounds good. interesting. Yeah, it does. Actually, the, the trailer makes it actually look like it could be really quite good. It seems to give away a little bit too much, to be honest. But the idea and the principles of it look like that's going to be a you know a really kind of it's that's going to go to uh, VOD um, more than likely. Yeah, sure. But it looks like the sort of interesting thing you know that you'll the more interesting take on on kind of like the modern kind of horror thing. Um, the first fifteen twenty seconds of the trail, I, I did think oh this this looks pretty generic and dull. And then as it got on, I thought oh, you know what this looks like it actually could have legs. Um, and the final one, you might have seen the poster for this. Um, it's a film with everyone's favourite Cam Gadanja in it. Um, oh, I've totally seen the poster for this. Bad Johnson. Have you seen the trailer for it? No, but I, I feel bad for doing so because of everyone's favourite Cam Gadanja is in it. So yeah. Um, do you know what the trailer, the poster is terrible and makes it sure. seem just just awful. You know what? The tra- once I started watching the trailer, uh, about halfway through the trailer, I thought, do you know what, yeah, I, I, this is going to be a terrible movie, but I could see myself watching it, finishing it, and going, that was alright, that. Yeah, sure. It, 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 the poster is just fucking terrible. The poster looks like the sort of thing someone's made on their lunch hour to take the piss out of something. Yeah, it totally does. The, the the trail of the film, the idea of the film is actually a guy basically keeps sleeping around and losing girlfriends because of it and then basically wishes his penis away. His penis wakes up one morning and he's, he, he's, his penis has gone and then he starts getting, gets a phone call from his penis and his okay. penis is a person who moves in with him. Um, and that is that is the, the film is, is he there has got now has got no penis but his penis is let loose so you've got this that sounds incredible person that has actually got the mind of a dick <laughs> um, is just going around and doing just fucking anything and he's left to kind of look after it and then it, it and the idea actually I then started thinking do you know what that's actually not a bad kind of idea for a film. From the poster, I had no interest. From the trailer, I'm a bit like, do you know what? Go on then. (laughs) Nice. Um, Yeah, 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 I'll I'll watch it with a few beers. Yeah, that's it. It looks like it could be quite entertaining uh, with, with a few beers and it could be quite funny. So, do you know what? Yeah, I'm a little bit for it now. Nice. Um, so that, that's it I think for trailers isn't it yeah I think so mate unless you've got any others uh, no that, that, that's all I've, I've, I've watched there um, 
So, yeah, well, well, moving on, segueing nicely from trailers, uh, I'm going to uh, drop us in a trailer from the new Terry Gilliam film, uh, The Zero Theorem, and then we'll, we'll get into chatting about it. We always wanted to feel different. Unique. Objective analysis, however, concluded that we are but one in many single worker bees. Everyone's getting rich, except you. What seems to be the problem? We are dying. Who's we? Us. Ourselves. But there's only one of you. So it would appear. Right, Quinn, how's it hanging? Is it hanging at all well? Eh? Sorry. A fear of death, fear of life, fear of open spaces, fear of people. We see nothing most of all. Are you trying to be difficult? Been handpicking talent to crunch it since before I was hired. Nobody laughs. It's a guaranteed burnout project. Zero theorem. All very hush hush. Zero lasting for 100%. Good luck. I give him two weeks. Are you here alone? We are generally everywhere alone. You think my dress is incredibly ugly? My dad used to buy me these incredibly ugly clothes to keep the boys away. Only made me want to get naked. Excuse us. Zero musty for 100%. Where is this place? All in your mind. We're safe here. Zero musty for 100%. What happened to you, man? Life, life happens to everybody, all right? The only reason you're not laughing is because you're the punchline. You have made a very big mistake. We don't believe you. Why would you want to prove that all is for nothing? Close your eyes. And now, picture it in your mind. I know we're connected somehow. Just come with me. We always wanted to feel a reason for being, the meaning of our life. We can be together for real. I'll be back in just about five seconds. Come back in. Uh, yeah, so the idea is that you've got um, Chris Fox's uh, Cohen Leith, uh, who is he's trying to find the the zero theorem, uh, which is the essentially the meaning of life. Um, Ian, uh, what did you make of the uh, zero theorem? Okay, so um, the Zero Theorem, I was disappointed um, pretty majorly, I suppose. Jim's a guy that it kind of feels like you're not allowed to criticise him. Um, he, he, he just, it, it feels like he's too much of a treasure that you're not allowed to poke faults in his work. And if you're doing so, somehow you're being like a bad sport. But there's an awful lot about the Zero Theorem, which is just shonky and shabby and kind of slightly feels half-assed in how unoriginal a lot of it is and i know that sounds weird again coming from gilliam but it just seems like he just had a bunch of ideas that were kind of for brazil and kind of for 12 monkeys and he's just mushed them all together and created the zero theorem i mean no he didn't write it um i mean the, the film basically becomes somewhat watchable due to christoph waltz who puts in a, a real mvp performance i thought but the um a lot of the rest of it I could really do without. I mean, we'll get into the specifics, but I, 
I thought it was a bit of a, a, a slog, and I'm, in a way, even though it sounds uncharitable, I'm glad it made fuck all at the box office this weekend, because I kind of don't think it deserved it. Um, I think I, um, I think I certainly enjoyed it uh, more than yourself, um, but it is it it feels quite um, I don't know slight Gilliam if there's if there's such a thing um, it's it's certainly not up there with with his sort of his best work um, but it, it it sits kind of mid Gilliam for me. Um, Without question, I'd say it's not up with the the other two movies that, that it is easily comparable to with Brazil and Twelve Monkeys, um, and I did have a lot of issues with it um, in terms of um, structurally, it, it it tends to to not really make sense, um, and uh, I I felt that the that I I didn't connect. Although Christoph Waltz is very good in it, um, I, I just plain didn't care about his character at all, um, and I felt that there was the, the those other characters that I connected with a lot more, and they were the more interesting characters of the of the piece themselves, uh, and I wanted to spend more time with them and less time with um, with Christoph Waltz's Cohen, um, but except although I think I probably played it more than yourself, but it. it it, it felt rushed, which is a strange thing for for, for Gilliam, um, because you know he, he famously can never get a film in on time and can never get a film in on budget. Uh, this felt a little bit like it, it, like you say, like it didn't have his full attention for the full amount of time. Yeah, I mean it, it was rushed. I mean that's the thing. Apparently it was yeah. shot in like thirty-seven days or something like that. You know, and it, it kind of needs must. I mean it, that's interesting actually. But coming at it from a different point of view, um, obviously because I was drawn to Christopher's character, um, I, I thought okay, he's kind of just doing the um, the slightly socially retarded kind of like loner kind of thing, which is done by Bruce Willis in Twelve Monkeys and Jonathan Price in in Brazil, mm. um, and two and. It, uh, to an extent, I suppose you could look at like maybe Andrew Garfield's character in the Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus, even though he's not like the hero of that. But it, 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 I, 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 I was drawn to him. I find, I find him a charismatic performer, and it might be more waltz than the character, frankly. Um, yeah, but I he, thought he, he's, I, he's very. That's not saying anything. Chris Waltz, Chris Waltz is very good in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, the other characters, I just found they were the kind of the usual. Gilliam things like the you know the boss who even even if they're not actual like Gilliam characters it kind of feels like characters he would make like the the kind of the hooker with the heart of gold who's quirky and wears weird outfits and has abstract ideas but um, is the object of the um, of the protagonist's lust you know um, I, I, I mean that that feels very Gilliam and I think Melanie Thierry certainly does the, the, the does well with what she's got here. But it, she's a very, very one-note character, and I mean, like, it's. I think Gilliam's handling of female characters is something that could be criticised generally, um, and I think this is this is a case in point. She doesn't feel like a character as much as she feels like a fuckhole, and um, but and I think that that that's a problem. Um, and I mean, David Hewis is basically channeling Eric Idle, um, and he does it well. But just the the whole kind of like the boss who doesn't really care and doesn't really listen kind of thing. It just they, these all feel like ideas from 30 years ago, even though the, the film's tackling like big concepts. I mean, the the dichotomy of the 
man who has the ultimate faith that he is going to get this phone call trying to prove that like that's going to sound in the meaning of life trying to prove that everything means nothing i mean that's a a, a wonderful contradiction but it kind of feels like that's the punchline and not the starting point like that's basically what matt damon's character says right at the end of the film and it's just like well yeah that's an interesting idea what are you going to do with it oh you're not really going to do anything with it because the film's over hmm yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I completely, completely see that, you know, that point. And I think a lot of the characters within this film um, do kind of feel very um, underdeveloped. Uh, I mean, maybe that's, you know, that's the, the problem in, in terms of the writing. Maybe it's the ideas, etc., that Gillian was drawn to, uh, but the writing's just, just not quite, not quite there. Um, they don't feel fleshed out enough. They don't feel like. Um, there's enough there. Uh, I mean, my the, the two characters that I was more interested in were uh, were um, Bainsley, uh, the Melanesian character, uh, and Bob, the uh, Lucas Hedges character. Um, I was certainly more interested in, in those two characters as ideas. Um, you know, apart that because Bob is a more interesting character, I felt than than um than Cohen um and partially because I just thought that the, the most charismatic part of the entire film was any time Melanesieri was on screen uh, that um, sidestep uh, could be for the fact that uh, that she's uh, incredibly pretty in French so there is that uh, which could have caught more of my attention um but it, it just <sighs> I didn't give a shit about whether or not um Colin found the uh, the zero theorem, or whether he got his phone call, or anything. And I, I felt like as it was going through, I got to about maybe two thirds of the way through, and and was hit by the fact of I actually don't care how this movie ends. Yeah, quite. And I mean, the thing is, it's it's almost like the way it does end is the way it was always going to end. Yeah. You know, like he's going to jump into the black hole. Great. All right. Brilliant. You know, it just it it, it doesn't. There was nothing really of invention here apart from some of the visual ideas. I mean, you know, the film had a limited budget and it's a shame because like when he's walking outside towards the beginning, there's lots of wonderful, weird flourishes like the costume design and the. The, the, the advertisement that follows people around like Minority Report, except it just keeps on calling everybody madam. Madam, yeah, and yeah. It, it, it's a great, because I mean, Gillian has explored the kind of, the steampunk ideas with uh, with uh, 12 Monkeys and, and Brazil and that kind of idea, but he kind of mixed the steampunk with like a neon kind of um, candy shop um, aesthetic to it as sure. well. Uh, and that, you know, that kind of worked quite, quite nicely, but also as well, I think that I think a good thing about the fact that it was a lower budget it is uh, what Gillian did with 12 Monkeys was he literally went to a scrapyard and had um, workers and he'd basically say I need this, I need like a I need a big sort of bit here and I need some TV screens in it and they basically just made it out of scrap crap um, and then he'd go and he'd go yeah that's brilliant or he'd say I need this I need a chair and whiz it across it there and these engineers and set builders would literally just make it and build it out of literally just scrap yeah. And it, it worked really well. And one, I think, if he'd have had a budget, more of a budget, he'd have done more with CG with it, and it'd have ended up looking a little bit garish, like parts of um, of Imaginary Dots Parnassus, where Gilliam, I don't think he works very well with with CG. I think he goes too colourful with it. He goes too. 
it, it ends up looking like bad CG rev, whereas you've got other people that can use CG quite well. Um, but I, I mean, almost, I think that yeah, remember we are all spoilers all the time. We've already started to spoil a little bit of things with this anyway. But the, the the closing shot of the film is almost a perfect analogy for the entire film in the fact that this film it, it throws an awful lot of balls up in the air and then just literally gets to the end of it and can't be asked to catch any of them. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a very good point. I like, I like that. It, it is the fact that it's almost as if Gilliam's saying, well, look, I'm bringing up these ideas and I've got, the, I've got these visuals and I've got these quirky characters, but then he's not pushing it at all. He's mm. just bringing up a load of stuff and that's it. And I mean, like that, that to some, that might be part of the charm of Gilliam, but it, I don't know. He is capable of making better films. And the, the thing is, it almost feels like he's so in love with his legend of, you know, being defiant and a true original and whatnot, that it's almost like it, it's it's become as if it's a happy accident when the film itself turns out to actually be good. Um, I, 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 it, I sound like I'm being really harsh, but it's just like the, the, the man's track record, he's done some great stuff, but he's done some utter bobbins as well. And this is one of those for me. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it, it sits it sits above things. I preferred it to Parnassus, and I liked Parnassus. Um, but that's probably because I, I didn't like the, the visual look of um, the Imaginarium parts of Parnassus. Uh, and it sits above things like Brothers Grimm. Uh, but it, it, it's not the same level of things like Twelve Monkeys, Fisher King, Brazil, and, and, and Fair and Lower thing. It, it, it's definitely not that high. Uh, as them um, it just you, you, the problem is with Gilliam is you wait for so long for his films that when they come along you know you kind of you, it's easy to get really kind of you know disappointed and the fact is it's got a really you know it's got a great cast you know you think Christoph Waltz great idea did uh, military did Thulis and yeah, we've got people like Matt Damon's going to be appearing, Tilda Swinton's going to be in, and then the fact that, you know, that some of these are in it, I mean, Ben Wishart is in it for literally seconds, mm. and then that's it, and then he's gone. Um, and you kind of come out of it going, well, I mean, because my, because uh, Becky's a, a huge Gillian fan, she wanted to go and see this with me, but at times she just didn't end up working out. Um, and I got out of it and was, it was very much kind of straight away to say to her, look, you'll like it more than me because you like Gillian's thing more than me, but don't, don't kind of rush to go and see it at the cinema because it, 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 it isn't the sort of thing that's really massively going to benefit from being seen at the cinema. And, I mean, this is going to lead into something uh, which we might as well quickly discuss now, is the kind of the strange... You know, wide release this film's got, which you know, I mean, it's great. A, a Terry Gilliam film uh, has got a wide release, but I've seen virtually no um, PR for this film at all. No, I mean, like Gilliam himself. I mean, fair play to the guy. He's been he's been doing the rounds. I mean, he, he was on the one show last week. Yeah. And I never ever thought I'd see Terry Gilliam on the one show. That's insane to me. Um, and I mean, but that's the thing. I haven't seen any posters, haven't seen any trailers. The only reason why I knew it was coming out is because of launchingfilms.com. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I thought it was out, I, I thought it must be out later on in the year. And, and, then, it, and then I literally, I, I looked um, at what was coming out this week, um, 
and there it was. I thought, oh, right, oh, that's, that's weird. It's getting a wide release. But then when you take something like Under the Skin, uh, which we'll discuss next week, so I won't talk about the film, um, there's been a lot of... I haven't seen many posters or stuff for it, like, on, like, buses or bus stops or anything like that. But there's a significant amount of buzz, you know. It's on the front page of a few film magazines, and it's, you know, it was on the front page of, I think, The Guardian's... Um, culture um pull out and things like that so you know the, it, it it does seem a little bit kind of strange maybe i'm not saying it, i'm not saying it's strange that that wasn't released on more screens but it, it, it does seem like they've, they've put it into all these screens but they've not kind of given it the, the backup that it that it, it warranted and my screening was a, a sunday screening at quarter to four in the afternoon and there was there was two people there um, and the other guy was wearing a Time Bandits t-shirt, so he's clearly a, a Gilliam fan. Um, yeah, I mean, there was nobody else in my screening. It was 11am on a Saturday, in fairness, but, you know, it, it, yeah, I mean, the thing is, with Under the Skin, I mean, it kind of, Studio Canal have been, a uh, distributor have been um, kind of um, uh, proven to be smart cookies about this, because it's, it's almost like playing in a, such a limited release has built the, like, the, the anticipation for it. Yeah. And the thing is, if Under the Skin had come out and had done numbers like Zero Fear and that, I mean, 50 grand with this release, it was like, it made four times less than Under the Skin this weekend on three times as many screens. I mean, that's insane. It made 50 um, grand. And, and it made 50 grand. That's, that's low. Yeah, I mean, like, to put that in context with, like, in terms of US gross, that would be the same as doing about $0.5 million. Um, so, you know, it's... It's nothing, basically. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, I mean, like, uh, under the skin, the thing is, if they'd released it wide and it had made 50 grand, then Studio Canal would be getting shit. Yeah, as cool. it is, it, they, they've made, like, 200 grand or something like that. And um, and now, you know, they can expand it and they can, like, they can say to the, the cinema chains, this is the site average, you know, this has got word of mouth, this has got positive buzz, this has got the reviews you know, release it a bit wider, see what happens, you know, and if it fails, then at least it was a valiant attempt, whereas Sony are just looking like bellends for giving this the release it did. Yeah, I mean, is it is this caught in the States yet? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, that's... It just, like you say, I felt, I think I liked, like I said, I think I liked it more than yourself, but it, it did feel... It, it just felt a little bit almost like somebody trying to make um, a Terry Gilliam film rather than Terry Gilliam making a film. There's, well, there's... Yeah, I mean, it's almost, it's not near, it's not as bad a film, but it's almost like Argento doing Giallo, where it's just like, I'm going to do this, it's going to cater to my fans, and almost being a bit lazy with it. But at least with uh, uh, Giallo, you had Kiss Kiss No More and Adrian Brody, like, just what doing whatever the fuck. Yeah, yeah, it's like I I I, I, can, I can absolutely see why you were why you were disappointed. Um, I, like I said, I think I did get a bit more out of it. Um, I mean, if you've got that much more to say on it, I, I don't really have that much more to say. It, it, it's it's a strange one. This you get the feeling like if if. If it had more time to pad it out and more time to look at I mean, it, say more time to look at the script. I mean, it, it's been in in his mind to make it for a, a number of years. Um, you know, he, he was going to make it before they made Parnassus. 
Um, so, you know, it's been floating around for like five, six years. It just, it, like you say, it does seem a little bit lazy. Um, what, where are you with it? Um, it? Yeah, I mean, it's, to be honest, frankly, I enjoyed watching Brothers Grimm more than this. <laughs> you know, it, it just, it's, it's just the fact that it feels like such a hodgepodge and it feels lazy. It barely, even though I'm sure they had to work like dogs on this, it, it the end product feels lazy. And, you know, that it just, I, I, I mean, this is defiantly a definitely shit for me. Which, I, you know, I don't actually say for, for our main reviews that much, you know, mm. but it just, I would not recommend this, despite the fact that Christoph Waltz for me and some of the visual ideas almost make it worth a go if the film was 20 minutes shorter i'd probably be kinder to it you know yeah. it's just shy of two hours and it fucking feels it to me it does it, it spends a little bit too much time with uh with christoph waltz on his own um slipping into the the madness hole slipping into the abyss a little bit um and it spends a little bit too much time building up to him being on his own um, you, you, you could easily lose 20 minutes out of this film and not notice. Straight up. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go for the overall of film. I'm going to have to follow suit and go. It, it is a bit shit. Uh, I liked it more than you, and I thought um, Nancy Air is an absolute delight to, to, you know, every time she's on screen. But then again, I refer that back to the fact that she's pretty in French, which is a little bit of a weakness to me. Um, so, yeah, it, unfortunately. Hate to say it because I, I I love the guy, but it, it goes down as a, as a as a shit from me as well. Yeah. So here are some um, uh, promos for uh, other podcasts we uh, know and like, uh, and then we'll get into some one old one new. <laughs> It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. For sake, the manager, you love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I can handle anything. Action. <laughs> Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back for just one more adventure. Humans are such easy prey. Noel Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit! The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Miller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures of VHS or visit adventuresofvhs.com. Are you tired of film podcasts where the hosts exist in a constant, blissful state of agreement? I mean, the main, the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I have ever encountered in any film. Well, you're in luck. Let me introduce you to Chinstroker and Punter. One is an ex-film student with a penchant for David Lynch and hard cinema. The other is a man on the street. Listen in perplexed and horrified terror as we tear apart one film a week. 
just really It's isn't. not visually striking. No. I just just getting confirmation. It's just in that's the third time though. I mean I must this is on. You can find us at chinstroker versus punter.podomatic.com. So come and share the victory. If you could any man in film, who would it be and why? My answer is Lance Henriksen. He oh. wouldn't tell. He looks like somebody <laughs> He looks like somebody who can keep a secret. I'm Sarah from GorePress.com, and along with my co-host Phil, we present the GorePress Gorecast. But Sarah, what is the GorePress Gorecast? Well, Phil, I'm glad you asked. It's a weekly show in which we review horror movies, discuss our love for the genre, and generally just blunder through, showcasing our startling ineptitude at podcasting. Hello, and welcome to another. Go- oh, for fuck's <laughs> sake! No, that's not helping. That sounds ridiculously professional. That can't be all we do, can it? It certainly isn't. We also try and talk a little bit about what we've watched recently and selflessly plumb the depths of B-Movie Hell so we can inform you, our loyal listeners, about what to watch and what to avoid. Well, that just sounds dandy. Where could I find such a podcast? Well, Phil, you can subscribe to us by searching for the new Gorepress Gorecast in iTunes or you can find us at gorepress.com. So much knowledge about this film. Okay, Ian, uh, do you want to fire uh, your first one old or one new at us? Sure, so I'll, I'll warm up with some one new because the one old I'm quite looking forward to talking about. But uh, my one new, so um, Noel was actually talking about some 35mm heroes when we um, when, when we recorded on Monday, and uh, he was talking about it, I was just like, fuck it, that sounds like fun. So I watched the ride along. Oh, the um, the Kevin Hart um, Ice what's... Cube Ice Cube movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. So basically, this was massive in the US. It's done okay over here, but it was massive in the US. It made over a hundred million dollars, which for a January release is is a pretty great going, frankly. Um, and it stars um, Kevin Hart, who's been an up and comer for like years now, but he's, he seems to have finally broken through. And um, and Ice Cube. Um, Basically, Kevin Hart is going out with Ice Cube's sister, and he's just been accepted to the police academy. Ice Cube's character is... Um, I'm not even going to give the character names, it's just I'm just going to give the actor names, fuck it. Yeah. Um, Ice Cube is a cop who's on the hunt for the mysterious Omar, a kind of an arms dealer supreme who um, doesn't show his face, um, uh, and nobody knows what he looks like. Um, basically, um, he doesn't like Kevin Hart, and... Um, Kevin Hart wants to prove himself, and Ice Cube basically says, all right, you're going to come along with me on a ride along for a day, and if you can prove yourself, I'll give you my blessing to um, uh, ask my sister to marry, to marry you, and I'll respect you, basically. And um, hijinks ensue. So um, the, the thing is, I'm, I'm like, a lot of people have been very, very sniffy about ride along. Yeah, it, 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 and in a way, it's kind of easy to see why, just because it's a mainstream Hollywood comedy, doesn't really seem to try particularly hard, you know, in, in that kind of like horrible bosses, identity thief kind of way. Um, um, however, you know, it frankly, I enjoyed my time watching it. I do not begrudge the 99 minutes or so that it, that it took to, to consume it, you know. And um, 
And for that alone, it gets a recommendation. It gets a three out of five on Letterboxd. Kevin Hart is slightly annoying at times, even though not nearly Chris Tucker in Fifth Element or Rush Hour films annoying. So, you know, there is that. And um, I don't know, he's got a kind of weird sincerity to him um, in this film. It, it doesn't it doesn't quite feel like he's just playing this character. It, it kind of, I'm not going to say it feels like he is this character, but it, it feels like he's actually giving it a good go and it's almost as if weirdly like he's drawing on some life experience of having to impress people because of his size or something you know and um, that that works quite well but he's also willing to make make himself look like a fool when there's some solid physical comedy stuff with him Um, but he's also has got a bit of a motor mouth and some some of the stuff he comes out with in, in some of the scenes are good as well and I mean Ice Cube is you know quite funny as the straight man frankly the looks that he gives and uh just that, that his reactions are enough. Yeah, I mean, the, the plot takes no surprising turns whatsoever. There's corrupt cops that you will know they're corrupt from the, the first minute you see them. Um, the, the action's not amazing. We don't really expect it to be. It's directed by Tim Story, who did the Fantastic Four films and Barbershop, I believe. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's had a number of rewrites as well, I think. That it's been on the cards for ages, and then eventually I think they just gave it to um, Jason Mantzoukas, um, who um, writes um, for The League, and is in The League, uh, and got him to do a rewrite of it, and he rewrote a bit more comedy into it. And then that's how we got Ice. That's how we got uh, Kevin Hart into it. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, I don't know. The screenplay's fine. It doesn't. It's not surprising at all. But like I say, it's got enough laughs. And the thing is, this kind of film, all it's trying to do is is mildly entertain you. You know, I don't. It's it's not. I don't think it's even trying to be super super funny. It's just trying to be kind of laid back mainstream and just doing what it does you know it's like last vegas it, it just it does what it does and it doesn't try to be more and you almost can't expect it to be more and you know and because of that it would never get more than a three out of five but i judge three out of five as a like mild recommend and that's what ride along is to me and i think there's nothing particularly bad about that you know I, 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 I don't begrudge watching the film like I don't begrudge watching four-star films or five-star films. You know, I don't begrudge the time I spent with it. It's just obviously the quality is not quite there compared to better films. However, you know, it's diverting enough. I had a, I, I had a good time watching it. Um, it. It goes along at a decent enough pace. And I... I, I just have I have few complaints because it didn't try to be anything more than it was, and I say fair play to it for that. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, I, I, you know I'm, I've heard some I've heard enough good things about it to go. Do you know what? I'm gonna give it a go. Mm. I think I think you'll you'll enjoy it at the very least. I, I, I have nothing against kind of just you know switching. They're essentially they're like they're midweek movies there's a sort of movie you'll throw on on a night just to kind of switch off and wind and kill some time and I'm happy with that type of thing um, I can't be as nice I'm afraid about the film that I'm going to uh, talk about uh, I watched uh, The the Bagman uh, okay have you heard of this yeah I commented on your picture of the poster yes on Facebook right. 
I, I okay. watched the, the, the Bagman. Um, it, it's part of the um, this uh, constant, um, almost fucking conveyor belt of um, John Cusack generic paycheck movies that he seems to be getting through. Um, he, he, John Cusack releases an awful lot of films nowadays, um, and very few of them actually ever... I mean, to give you an example, John Cusack was in... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven films between 2013 and by the end of this year. Eleven. Eleven. I mean, to put that into context, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, eleven. That is the same amount of films as he did between 2000 and 2006. I mean, that is it's a staggering number. And none of these will end up in a cinema, is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. I was drawn to the bag, man. Um, I don't dislike John Cusack. I just think that he turns out crap nowadays. Um, I was drawn to this because it also starred Robert De Niro, who is partial for, for churning out... Um, straight to VOD crap uh, mixed in with, you know, the actual stuff that will get released in a cinema as well. You know, he's, he's just as he's just as guilty as as Cusack almost. Um, and then, but I mean, the idea of the Bagman is uh, Robert there plays what seems to be some kind of crime boss um, who is dressed up like... Um, if anybody watches Archer out there, do you watch Archer? Um, I have watched it, but I don't really watch it. So. Um, the um, I can't remember his name now, but basically the um, Cadillac um, dealer that marries Archer's mum, right, who is like an archetypal-looking um, successful Jewish guy. Um, that's what De Niro looks like. He's got thick rim glasses, he's got his curly hair, and he, he, that is what he looks like, like like a drawing of your archetypal stereotype um, Jewish guy. Um, but it, it, it's massively overblown. He's hired John Cusack's character to go and pick up a bag, right? Hence the clever name, The Bag Man. <laughs> he then has to go to a hotel and then wait for De Niro to come and pick it up. And just all kinds of shit starts going on that involve uh, a pimp with one eye, um, a Serbian midget, Crispin Glover in a wheelchair that he doesn't need to be in because he can walk, um, Dominic Purcell uh, as a corrupt um, sheriff, um, and um, Rebecca da Costa, um, who, who, I mean, the film doesn't tell you this seven or eight times, is uh, six foot, right? And it tells you seven or eight times about the fact that she's six foot, right? I checked it, she's not even six foot, right? Um, and just all kind of random things keep happening, uh, and John Cusack is just trying to keep this bag and wait for De Niro to turn up so he can get his money and go. Um, it's... It's 108 minutes long, right? I'm not joking. You could shave 40 minutes, an hour off that and still tell exactly the same story. I got 
to the point where at one point I actually contemplated going, do you know what? I kind of want to know what happens at the end. I just don't give a shit how they get there. You know, if I wasn't a principled film watcher, I would have just fast-forwarded, watched the last five minutes and gone, oh, that was shit. But I actually had to sit through the rest of it. It is just so turgid and just so pointless. And I was watching thinking, how did... How did... What did, you know, Dominic Perso, John Cusack, Robert De Niro and Crispin Glover, what did they see in this script, in this movie, that made them think, yeah, that, that that's all right. Is there so much on the cutting room floor that just didn't, you know, that would have made all the rest of it make sense? Because there are individual scenes that are quite good. But the problem is, is every point that gets it from A to B, which B isn't a surprising place, every point, is just makes no sense and every character is just weird for no reason and the same thing just keeps on happening again that it got to the end and I thought I can't believe I just wasted nearly two hours watching that shite. What's the runtime? Uh, 108 minutes. So an hour and 48 uh, minutes. Yeah, I feel sorry for you. An hour and 50 minutes. You know, it's not... I'm not joking. You could have... You could have told the story in 50 minutes. You could have fleshed it out a little bit and given me a 78-minute film and it would have been so much better because I wouldn't have had to sit down for another 40 minutes and watch the rest of it. It was so boring. And that is the worst crime a film can commit, is to be boring. Uh, so yeah, the bag man. Please, if it comes across and you think ah, it's worth a go, it's just not. It's just not worth a go at all. Mm. Uh, go then. What's your uh, one old for us? Right, let's cheer things up a bit then. I'm on Netflix. Oh, fancy watching something a bit like laid back. You know, don't have to think too much, but cool at the same time. I'm having a look and it's like. I haven't seen that for a while. Brian De Palma's Snake Eyes. Oh, my first uh, DVD. Oh, yeah, it was one of the early ones, wasn't it? Yeah, my first... Uh, well, one of my first DVDs because I got a wave of DVDs and I got my DVD player. But that, uh, A Bug's Life and American History X, my first DVDs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, um... Nice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Snake Eyes, um, which, you know, I kind of remember being, like, kind of just panned at the time. Yeah. And the, the thing is, I can kind of see why, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, the plot is retarded. It's really, really stupid. And Cage is doing Crazy Cage in that kind of period where he wasn't doing Crazy Cage so it stands out more. Yeah. Um, but, like, he's, like, just an insanely obnoxious dick for, like, a lot of the film. Um, but the thing is, it's so... Oh, hello, what's he? All right. Um, it's so stylish and... It, 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 it just has so much fun with the visuals that 
I, I just, I, 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 I love it. I, I, I don't love, well, I don't love it, but I, I really like it. The, the tracking shot at the start is fantastic. Um, like the, the, the choreography involved in that, given the amount of people around it, is insane. Um, the the flashbacks I really like. Um, the, the like the you know there's like first person going on, there's split screen going. On. I mean, there's your usual. Oh, yeah, I mean it's the it it's just the the fun that the Palmer has telling the story and. Um, I mean that along with I think the uh, Nicholas Cage's character art is kind of interesting. I mean, the the film kind of climaxes and then there's another ten minutes left really because um, after um, after the whole Gary Sinise thing is done, it's like news footage of him being held as a hero cop, but then like an investigation being launched into his dodginess and stuff like that. And then there's a scene at the end, and I I thought that was that was interesting because there are so many films where it's just like you have the um, the kind of the the, the the guy with a, maybe a slightly dodgy past who kind of like wins the day, but then you don't see the aftermath. And yet with this, you kind of do. And by the end of it, he's basically going to prison. Yeah, he's kind of on a promise that he's going to get a shag when he get when he gets out of prison. But you know, he's he's still going to prison, and you know, he's lost his wife, wife and son. You know, they've left him and whatnot. So it just it's um I don't know it, it, that, that I think that is interesting. And I mean the. Just the, the various characters, like I mean, like that 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 woman that he's on a promise with at the end in, in a wig, and there's a woman in a red dress, and you know, it, and, and I mean, like the the fighter who um who's kind of uh, kind of bought off. Yeah, it just it, it, these are kind of classical kind of elements to this kind of mystery, but it's done with real kind of visual panache, which is overblown. But that is the Palmer, and now looking at it now, it is the Palmer, and maybe back in that day. It wasn't, and maybe it was a bit of an aberration. But now, you know, you look at a film like Passion, and you look at a film like Snake Eyes, and they feel like two peas in a pod. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, you know, I mean, this was coming off, you know, really off the back of one of the Palmer's biggest, you know, probably his biggest hit of his career, really, um, in Mission Impossible. And this was kind of, it was, because the Palmer had a strange career, um, you know, it was, it was towards the end of you know he's what started with sort of films like you know the Untouchables um, that was really you know a very very popular you know and made a lot of money and you know was critically you know adored and then you know Casualties of War you know similar thing and you know Bump and the Vanities did well and then you know you had Carlitos Way and things like that and then this kind of it it, it it was kind of De Palma almost going, well, look how much money I made you with, with Mission Impossible. I want to do this now. And I'm going to get Nick Cage, who was like a big fucking star at the time. And it just, it seemed like De Palma went, here you go. And they went, oh, shit, that's not the film we thought you were going to make. And he went, well, yeah, but that's the film I was wanting to make. Yeah, 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 no, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it does still feel commercial to me anyway but it just it's again it's just a bit weird in its construction i think maybe that puts people off but um i don't know i mean i i i i, I actually thought gary sinise in it was um was all right you know um i i i, I like his kind of like this guy you're right yes yeah, i'm a church move 
Oh, okay, cool. I, th- I thought you were just having like a really violent orgasm. No, my violent orgasms are, are way louder than that. Oh, fair play. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just crying uh, and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's, it's weird. I don't want to know. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it just... Um, oh, I've lost my train of thought now. Never mind. Um, <laughs> my orgasm. Uh, oh, dear. Yeah, well, that's true. Oh, no, Gary Smith. I, I like his kind of honourable man who... It's kind. Of, he was kind of. It seemed like he was doing these these things for the good, for the, the the right reasons at the start, but then he's corrupted again. It, it's a kind of a familiar trope, but it's one I enjoy, and I think Gary Sinise is good at it. You know. <coughs> oh, excuse me. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's just um, it is completely style over substance, as is a lot of De Palma's work. But um, I think there is still worth in that, and it, it's it, it's it's very very enjoyable. Um. And it's also quite a good-looking copy on Netflix UK, it must be said. Yeah, it, it's if I remember correctly, it, it, it's it, it's it gets in and gets out pretty fucking quick. Yeah, it's um, it, it's around the ninety-minute, the ninety-ninety-five-minute mark, I believe. Um, yeah. And you know, it does get going and it barely stops until the kind of the epilogue at the end. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's I I, I do really like it. Uh, well, there's one thing I remember uh, vividly. I remember reading about this um, in um, the Guardian um, when it was released. And I, I seem to remember that Brian De Palma had a real big issue with the fact that um, the studio were complaining about the fact that he didn't make enough money. I think it was released on, on DVD. This was, um, and he said that the, that the reason he thinks the reason why he didn't make enough money at, at the box office was because they released it uh, the same weekend as Saving Private Ryan. Oh, well, there you go, then. And he, That's and, obviously going to be the reason. And he said, you know, you, you can't release me the same weekend as Saving Private Ryan and expect me to make money. And then, funnily enough, in the UK, it wasn't released the same time, the same weekend as Saving Private Ryan. It was released the same weekend as uh, The Thin Red Line. So <laughs> he kind of got shafted at both sides. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 do you know what? I'm going to watch that at some point in the next week or so. Nice. Because it reminded me, I've gone, do you know what? I like that film. Nice. Good, man. Cool. Uh, right. Uh, I'm going to throw up my, my one all bit yet. Um, now, a few shows ago, so a few weeks ago, um, I spoke of um, 2012, the uh, Roland Emmerich uh, movie. Uh, and I, I really did like it. Uh, it was a complete bar fest. Um, so the other day, um, on Sunday evening, um, we were looking for something to watch. Um, myself, Becky, and, and Isabel. Um, and um, it got to the point of where I, I was bored of looking. We're all bored of suggesting stuff. And then Isabel just said, well, what about that? I happened to be scrolling through uh, the uh, Sky on Demand thing, and it was the day after tomorrow. And I thought, do you know what? Yeah, let's give it a go. I could do with that because you know I've seen it before and I hated it, but I thought I can I can quite happily sit through it, and you know I can happily pretend I'm watching it and look at my phone while it's doing it. Um, so we started watching it, and I was kind of you know was was kind of like glancing at my phone, but kind of like looking. And then about sort of half an hour in, I, I was very aware of the fact that I had literally just put my phone down and was just watching it and thought, 
hang on a minute, I'm actually quite enjoying this. Um, and say, oh, when I first saw it, couldn't stand it. Um, and then on this rewatch, I actually thought, you know what, it's the science quite simply doesn't make sense. It is just disaster porn. It is too overblown. The characters are just way for thin. And it, it is just sacred. And you know exactly what's going to happen from the start and all of these other things. But in that setting, I started watching it at kind of six o'clock on a Sunday afternoon um, with Becky and Isabel. I actually quite enjoyed it. I felt myself getting on board with it, and I pretty much I knew what happened, but I pretty much forgotten how it all happened within it. I found myself starting to get a little bit kind of behind the characters and sort of going for it, and found myself sort of drawn in and was looking at it going, Do you know what? You know, for a movie that's ten years old, it 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 still looks quite good. Uh, it looks a damn sight better than uh, twenty twelve, which was made five years, six years later, um, and found that, that I actually quite enjoyed it. <laughs> okay. It, it, it helps that it's 40 minutes shorter than uh, 2012 as well. But essentially, they're the same movie, really. Uh, it's just this sure. is a lot more entertaining. In, in what way? Than 2012. Yeah, go on. Um, 2012, the problem is they focus on too many people in 2012. So instead of it being where this, you've got Jake Gyllenhaal and what's going on in the uh, the library there, and then you've got uh, Dennis Quaid, uh, his dad, trying to get there, and you've got those two bits, and they're going to converge in the end. What we had with 2012 is you had... John Cusack and his kids, and then you had his ex-wife and her husband, and then you had the Russian guy that he worked for, and his kids and his girlfriend, and it, all these things, and it got to the end, and he had these big art, and it just, it they, they made too much out of essentially what is the same story as the day after tomorrow, you know, it, it, the same ideas of the story, and it just, it was, there was too much thrown at it, whereas this, it just felt that there was enough I, I connected with the characters enough and got enough out of the characters, and there were more bits going on, but they weren't as imposed upon um, as they are in 2012. It was, it felt a lot more, a lot more polished. Um, I mean, I'm not going out and saying it's a fucking great movie, and I, you know, it's now yes, a top hundred movie. Yes, but what I'm saying is, is that I went from absolutely just saying that this movie is just garbage to going, do you know what? When it finished, going, do you know what? I actually quite enjoyed that. What do you think of the CG wolves or the CG dogs or whatever? They yeah, are? they're terrible. Why don't you use real wolves? <laughs> but by that point, I just didn't care. Yeah, fair enough. I, I don't know. I need some. Part of my enjoyment of the day after tomorrow is part of it could be that that I was just glad I wasn't watching Twenty Twelve. Fair play. I, I don't know. I mean, I, um, it's really. Very, very, very silly. But if you were to ask me whether I'd rather watch Day After Tomorrow or 2012, I genuinely don't think I could give an answer to that. Trust me, it's Day After Tomorrow. Okay, I'll trust you. <laughs> cool. Um, right, um, so that's the end of our uh, one old and one new. Um, and we're going to play you a trailer from the uh, first of our When Ian and Mark Met Rob marathon. 
which is the trailer for When Harry Met Sally. Um, so here you go. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. Greg? No, I don't like to eat between meals. I'll roll down the window. A faceless guy rips off your clothes, and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I vary it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. You tell her about other women. Yeah. Like the other night. I made love to this woman, and it was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? Sure. I need to talk. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last night. I went night. over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting married. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing, to and then... To make a long story short, we, we did, did it. They did it. The challenge. I'm difficult. I'm too structured. I'm completely closed off. But in a good way. And I'm gonna be 40! <laughs> when? Someday. In eight years. men. Charlie Chaplin had babies when he was 73. Yeah, but he was too old to pick them up. That was the trailer for When Harry Met Sally. Uh, it's a 1989 uh, romantic comedy. Ooh, uh, horrible. Those, those horrible romantic comedy films. Um, it's written by uh, Nora Ephron and uh, directed by Will Briner. You've got starring uh, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan before both of their faces went weird. Um, yes. And it's the idea is you've got um, Crystal plays Harry Burns, who is a bit of a... He's the typical Billy Crystal character, you know, he's quite motor-mouthy, you know, but very intelligent, and he ends up carpooling, I think it should be car-sharing, uh, with uh, yes. Sally um, McRyan's character. Isn't it um, Billy Crystal's girlfriend is, like, one of Sally's friends? Yeah, I think, I think, I think yeah, they were, like, um, were they college dormants, something like that, yeah. Yes, um, so they've never met, this is the first time they've met, and they're driving from Chicago, to New York, um, and Meg Ryan's Sally is quite uptight, she's quite fastidious, um, and uh, you, you know, Harry isn't, he's quite sort of laid back, but quite kind of, you, know, you don't want to say morbid, but he's he's a little bit less brighter in terms of outlook than, than mm-hmm. she is. Um, and the whole film is about how they, their lives interject a few times and they grow to be friends, and the whole thing is predicated on a throwaway comment that Harry makes in that he says that men and women can't, can't just be friends because sex always gets in the way. Uh, Ian, you hadn't seen this before, had you? 
That's right. Yeah, no, I um, I, I hadn't um, to to my um, shame, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I, I, I watched this with Donna because um, she'd never seen it before either. And um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I do think I, I I very much enjoyed it though. I think it, it's weird how kind of iconic it's become to me. I think. Um, I mean, you've got that scene, yeah. me, you, you know, which is the the one that everybody references. But um, I don't know. I was kind of surprised how kind of standard the plotting was, um, which I, I, I think is because of its iconic status. I mean, it's poor standard, all... though, isn't it? I think. Sorry. It's poor standard, almost in a way. Yeah. I... Yeah, no, that that's true. I just I I I was always under the impression that they didn't get together at the end. Um, All right. And I thought, and I, I I think I kind of thought that just because it was iconic, and that was one of the reasons or something, you know. But so I like genuinely, weirdly, the ending surprised me, but only because I thought it was something else, not because the film the film goes down the usual expected avenue. Um, even though I mean it's got the, 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 I mean the thing that works is the fact that you know Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan are really good together um, you know I, I like the way that Billy Crystal's character kind of seems into her at least sexually right from the off whereas she has to kind of warm up to him um, and, and I liked that dynamic between them um, and I also thought it was interesting that you know they've got that one meeting um, where they're on the airplane mm. where you know, at that point, it kind of just looks like they're never going to see each other again. And I, I liked that there wasn't anything lingering in, in that, in, you know, in that moment in particular. I, 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 there were things in through, like, spaced out in the film that I thought were of interest. But I was, I, 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 I you know, I would recommend the film, but I was kind of, I'm kind of surprised I'm not recommending it more given, given its reputation. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it is held up very much as like one of the one of the, the kind of like the pull of the child of the romantic comedy. Uh, what became a, a very um, a very profitable and a very, a very copied genre throughout sort of the the mid to late nineties and into the early noughties. Um, you know, there was this and Sleepless in Seattle, which you know, that also kind of elevated that uh, that genre into becoming you know, a, a, a very bankable genre, which led to it becoming a very copied genre, which led to it becoming a very boring genre for a long time. Um, but And I think that when you look back on it, and, you know, people who would claim, you know, romantic comedies as being, you know, and I hate this phrase, as being chick flicks, it, it is, it, it's that kind of thing that annoys me, because this by no means isn't a romantic comedy that is a chick flick. This isn't 27 Dressing or whatever it is. You know, this is... there's it, It's a smart film. It, it makes sense. It still feels... You know, it, it's... What is it? 20, 25 years. years old? Yeah, this year. It still feels quite fresh. And it still feels... It still feels relevant. It doesn't feel that dated. You know, some of the technology reference is dated, but it doesn't feel that dated. And the problems are still actual problems that, that exist uh, in relationships nowadays and um, like you say the, the you know you've got billy crystal and meg ryan both 
you know, when they were at the top of their game, Meg Ryan is, is adorable in it. You know, she's not the, the weird thing that we see now that's Meg Ryan. And Billy Crystal, you know, it was in his pomp and he's, he's firing off lines and going and moving. And he's, he's actually, it's reminded of the fact that he's actually quite a good actor as well. Um, and the, the, you know, the writing is actually quite clever. It, it speaks of, of relationships in quite a quite an entertaining way and it is funny and you do I, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the film and you do kind of fall for the characters and and I I for years um I, I'd seen it but I'd kind of seen it when I was a lot younger and I think I'd probably seen it on like ITV or something like that when I was very young and you know didn't like the ideas of, of romantic comedies so I, I'd probably had seen it but not paid that much attention to it and I watched it a few years ago um, after a conversation with Mike uh, from Chief Rockers podcast mm-hmm. about it um, and he told me to, to go back to go back and just, just, just re-watch it being older and you know knowing you know the fact that you know what happened and like that but to go re-watch it as an older as, as a grown-up and so I did, and was straight away like, you know what, he'd write a fucking great film. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, um, I don't I mean, it's interesting, because it is definitely a grown-up film. I mean, you, you, you've even got the, um, the, 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 uh, the fact that, you know, frankly, Billy Crystal these days would never be a romantic lead. No. You know, and even though, like, even though they, they in, in the film, they kind of start in their 20s, they kind of, they, they, they pretty much through the whole film they kind of feel feel more like 30s yeah. people um and um it, it i i don't know it that just it almost feels unique now and that thing you're saying about how it's still real problems i mean that that's the thing it is still you know a man and a woman chatting and having discussions about life and relationships and that stuff it doesn't age you know and i mean there there are many many films these days uh, like romantic comedies that I don't know they they seem intent on filling it with so many references to culture yeah. now that it's almost there there isn't that much talk between them in relationships and they suffer as a result. Yeah, the the, the what is um, a romantic comedy now is such a, a bastardized version of uh, of what what came out of, of this movie. You know the fact that the fact that the most that this the seemingly most iconic moment in the film, in the film, is a throwaway incidental thing, and it and, and the fact that that has become the the reference point for this movie, it, it, it is quite kind of sad really because there's so much else in this movie that should be held up and said this is great. And it isn't. It's always, oh, it's that movie where she fits that. It's like, fuck off. Seriously. Yeah, sure. And it, 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 it's that thing. And what they've done is, is is making romantic comedies going further forward is a couple of people like that and they like that. And they pick almost the, the catchphrase moments out of the movie. And then what you end up with years later is you just end up with all of these bits strung together and that never works. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, this, it tells its story and it tells it well. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, the the time jumps are interesting and the kind of the documentary footage-like stuff, um, it kind of interspersing, introducing each chapter is interesting. I, 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 I don't know, it just, it's, I mean, these characters feel like they've lived lives. It doesn't feel like the film starts and ends with, 
the, the start and the end, you know, like so many romantic comedies do. Like, say something like 27 Dresses, where it, it you know, it starts off with um, uh, you know, a quick, like, run through her life or whatever, and then in a, by the end, everything's sorted. Everything's done. You know, it, it, it just, it, 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 it feels like these films are hermetically sealed in their own little worlds. Whereas when Harry Met Sally, it does kind of feel like it, it, it's, it's something... Uh, 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 in more more real, frankly, yeah. and kind of more vital. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it, it's a it's a better written, it's a better quality, uh, you know, of of writing um, than we, we. I think that that we're used to almost nowadays from our romantic comedies. Um, you know, this is you know, no reference. You know, it should be, even from the films she's written, I mean, she wrote. This then she went on to direct and write um, sort of Sleepers in Seattle, but really since then she, she's done nothing really of any actual kind of note. Uh, but it, it, it does seem like there was, there was something is, happened. Is, is she not dead now? Uh, she is, yeah, she died uh, in 2012. Yeah, yeah. That's why she hasn't done much of note. Well, yeah, she had, she had, she had fucking 23 years to do something else. That's true. Uh, she, she did Bewitched, Julia and Julia, You've Got Mail, the, uh, uh, Michael, do you remember that one? The, uh, um, oh, the Joshua Angel film. Joshua Angel, what a fucking horrible film that was. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, oh, I think that's, I'm, I'm pretty much done with when I remember Sally Cloves keep talking about it all day, to be honest, but it's a definitely not shit, and I, 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 I thoroughly love this movie. No, fair play, man. Fair play. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's, I, I, I think it's a cracking film. I just, I, um, I, I, I don't know. It, it didn't quite. I, I, I don't know. It didn't quite feel monumental, even though that that feels kind of mean, frankly. But uh, I don't know. I, it's, uh, I, I had a good time. What did you want to think of it? Liked it. Yeah, I didn't have too much to say, but um, you know, uh, 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 you know, liked it well enough. Cool, cool. Um, right, um, we're not entirely sure what, what the uh, the next film is in Rob Ryan, uh, the, when uh, Ian and Mark met Rob Marathon, are we? Are we doing let's, let's, have, let's have a fucking look. What's this bloody... Uh, right, we've got... The next film we directed was Misery. Uh-huh. And then we've got A Few Good Men after that. And then North, which we have to cover... Can we do a few good men? Because I've never seen a few good men. Have you so not? I yes, we'll do, a few, we'll do a few good men, and then uh, we'll do North after that. This is giving me a good excuse to watch stuff, man. This is great. Yeah, North's fucking brilliant. But anyway, <laughs> nice. Uh, well, it, it, I think we need to arrange Noel to come on with us for North, don't we? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll do that. North. Because uh, it went when, when uh, I think we're, I don't know whether that was caught on on the actual podcast. I can't really remember that much, to be honest. But he he he, he did seem like he, he couldn't quite understand why he hadn't seen that film. Yeah. Uh, when okay. we all that's good. Sober. That's good. But yeah, a uh, few good men. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely watching that. Sweet man, that's yeah, awesome. All right. Cool. Um, right. Um, We'll get into uh, what's well, yes, yeah, not shit. Uh, we'll get into Twitter questions. We've got a couple. We've got mail. 
We've got mail. I'll, I'll, I'll let you do mail then when I find Twitter questions. Cool. Um, so, yeah, it's this Dylan Richards who says, I've been listening since the very beginning of the show, since the time I pulled my finger out and sent a question. Here goes. Which VHS have you worn out the most due to constant rewindings of key scenes? I'd have to say most of the sex scenes are Betty Blue or the goof in Predator, where you can see Carl Weathers hiding his arm in his jacket after the Predator has just shot it off. <laughs> That's a good nice. one. Yeah. Um, um, the thing is, I, I feel really bad, but I, I, I'm kind of not old enough to have like particularly done that with VHSs because I mean I got my first um, Blu-ray a DVD player sorry when I was 14 Um, so that was kind of key what you'd imagine would be kind of like doing that with VHS kind of things I mean I will say um, I used to watch the end of High Fidelity loads because weirdly because it just cheered me up Um, nice. like, I, I, there was a period where I got up most mornings and I watched the last ten minutes of High Fidelity. <laughs> um, like Jack Black singing "Let's Get It On" and like uh, and and everyone just being so happy. Like I don't know why, but d- frankly, that's my equivalent. It's the last ten minutes of High Fidelity. That's uh, mine. Uh, I watched uh, Empire Records. Um, I got Empire Records on VHS um, by renting it, because you couldn't buy it on VHS in the UK at the time, by renting it from my um, video store, um, and then double-decker, I had a double-decker video player recording it from there onto another video so I could keep it. Um, And so I, I must have watched that, Jeez, I had that and Dazed and Confused both on the same VHS. Mm. Uh, and I would watch Empire Records, uh, I would say, at least once a week. At least once, probably twice. Two, three times a week um, for about a year, maybe two years. Okay. Uh, from 95 to 96. So practically, what I, th- I think I did wear it out and have to rent it again and record it again. Um, just from constant rewind and, and replaying. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, at the time, you know, now, back the amount, it's so easy to consume films and media. You know, back in the VHS days, you know, VHSs were 15 quid. Yeah. It was hard to go and buy them. And people, you know, like now, Isabel's got a collection of thousands of DVDs, Blu rays to look through, to watch, you know, out of Netflix and shit like that. My parents had very few um, DVDs. Um, I'm sorry, very few videos. Um, like looking at my uncle's uh, avid film fan, he had, he had quite you know a number, like a few hundred for me to, to borrow and stuff like that. But you know, being able to rent something from the video shop um, and then you know record it and keep it, and I, I had just piles of tapes where I recorded two or three things onto them. So, yeah, so I mean, that, that was, that was the, the life of a film nerd from, you know, in the VHS days, and it's, you kind of get nostalgic for it, but it, it is, it, you appreciated movies more because you had to watch them over and over again, because it's all you had. It, it, it has become a little bit throwaway. I wouldn't swap it for the fucking world, because it's great, the fact that you mentioned Snake Eyes, and I know that I've got it on DVD, 
but I also know that I can watch it in my bedroom in HD on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, I don't know, the, the, the way we consume media is, is, is changing, like, rapidly. And, I mean, like... At the at the moment, it's like I I fit in my film watching, um, kind of on the train or like in bits where um where where I'm I'm just having Lottie while um Donna has a bath or something like that, you know, or oh, well Donna's just doing some other stuff. So like Netflix is a boon for me because I'll and I I don't want to hear anyone saying oh you watch you watch film you watch films on the train what you know you have to see you have to watch them on a, a big screen blah blah blah. Frankly, if if that if I did that I I would not watch half the films I watch so if my if it's frankly being able to watch the films the amount of films that I watch versus watching them in in as good quality as I want to see them then unfortunately in a way the form is going to win out if if there's a choice at the time I will always go for big screen or a blu-ray you know but I can watch 20 like I can watch 40 minutes of a film a day on my on my phone <laughs> on the train to and from work. My with, 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 with that is, I watch, occasionally watch films on my phone, um, you know, quite often, actually. But the way I look at it is, I'll never watch something for the first time on my phone. I'll watch something for the first time on my TV, and I'll do it that way. But, you know, for instance, I was watching at work the other day, the other job that I have, uh, on a bar, and there was nobody in. So I watched a little bit of Vegas Vacation on my phone. I mean, fuck, you don't need to see Vegas Vacation on a TV screen, the big screen, or anything to get anything out of it. It's fucking Vegas Vacation. I've seen it before. It's perfectly okay to watch it on my phone. I'm never going to watch something like Heat on my phone. But, you know, stuff like that, and, you know, that's... It's because that's how I that's how I, I consume films. I've always consumed films in a you know in a I'll watch two or three films on a night kind of way. It's what I've done since I was in ten. You know that, yeah, that I mean, it, that's how I do it. And I, I saw some I think on Twitter where people were getting snippy about the fact that that people I don't know you know how people can claim they watch films when they watch six seven hundred films a year. You know you should only ever watch a couple of films a week because then you can let it settle in. I thought that's just utter bollocks. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and to be honest, I can't help but think that the people who say you've got to watch it on the big screen or whatever, you don't have kids or you work in in a kind oh. of critical capacity. For I mean, the thing is, if I was a film critic by day or something like that, of course all I'd ever watch is films on the big screen. You know what I mean? Or if I wrote if I wrote full time for a film website, of course that would be the way that I'd watch films because I'm able to do that. I have the time to do that. I'm a guy with a, you know with a job and I've got a family and I still try and keep the flame alive. Hmm. And so if it if it means I have to watch twenty minutes of something on my phone on the train, I'm going to do it look because it. I love films and I want to watch them. Look at this way. To be honest, I always work on a very cynical thing of, of 60% of the time people are talking shite anyway. So I guarantee you, some of those people who get snippy and say, oh, you can't film your phone, I guarantee you they watch fucking films on their phone. They just don't want to fucking admit it. They want to take some kind of moral high ground. And I mean, I, I'll also say as well, 
you know, I, I, I do have exceptions. Lawrence of Arabia, I've had it on Blu-ray for two years. I watched the first half an hour of it on Blu-ray, and then I stopped it, and I thought, if I'm going to watch Lawrence of Arabia for the first time, I'm going to watch it when it gets one of its re-releases, and I can see it on the big screen. You know, it, it's there are some films that just demand to be seen on the big screen the first time. Exactly. You know, Seven Samurai, you couldn't watch that on a phone. You couldn't, you just couldn't do it. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Under the skin. I haven't seen it yet, but if I'm going to watch that film for the first time, I'm going to watch it in the cinema. Exactly. But yeah, but like I said, Vegas Vacation, don't need to watch it. There you go. Uh, right, we do have a couple. Well, thank you very much for that question. Uh, and thank you very much for the support and listening from the beginning. Um, the, yeah, nice, the... uh, nice one, Dylan. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. You got, a, you got us to tangent. <laughs> if you get us to tangent, yeah, the question, you're doing well. Um, Thomas uh, DJ, uh, not Sir Tom DJ on Twitter. Um, what is the most inappropriate use of pop song in a movie? Um, most inappropriate use of a pop song in a movie. Yeah, uh, the at mine is the Eminem song. Um, I can't remember which one it is that's used in Despicable Me Too. Hmm. I can't the title of the song. Whichever song it is that was used in Despicable Me Too. Because it's about Eminem saying how boring music's got because it's all of this, and here I'm going to come in and start talking about dicks and fucking killing people. Um, here you go. And then that was used to in and to advertise a kids' movie. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, fuck, dude. I don't know. Um, I wish I'd seen that question before. Um, Nothing's coming to mind. There's never been any inappropriate use of a pop song in the history of cinema. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, sorry. Uh, that's just one weird. I've lost. I've lost the questions. We've got another one from um, Thomas DJ, um, which says, "Which TV fan base do you want to say shut up? You're not getting a big screen version of your obsession." Do you know what? I'm actually going to say none because TV no, you fan base these days. What? Are you going to say because of the Veronica Mars thing? No. All right, good. No, no, I was just no, I was just going to say. I don't think TV fans want big screen versions of things anymore because TV apparently is the best thing ever now. So. I don't think, you know, I just don't think they actually bother wanting that, to be honest. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, like, what? Does, does a fan of Breaking Bad want a Breaking Bad film? Does a fan of True Detective want a True Detective film? I've seen, I've seen a fair right. few people go on about uh, how good a Breaking Bad movie would have been. Oh, fuck off. Oh, I have, yeah. I, I have, and there's, 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 you still see it crop up. Um, the, the 24 one. To me, stands out, you know, and sure. that's happening. It, I think, isn't it? The uh, well, they're doing this. They're doing this new mini series set in London, but the oh, movie is still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one. It's fucking. That's just twenty fours had its time. It's been. It's gone. Move the fuck on. Mm. Um, uh, Tom, that very cinematic. Um, can two friends who sleep together uh, and still love each other in the morning? Which is a play on the uh, tagline for When Harry Met Sally. 
Sure, why not? Why not? Yeah, I would say so. Um, and we we have been challenged to recreate the poster for when Harry met Sally, haven't we? <laughs> At some point. Yeah, we have, man. That's shit people never want to see. Yeah, but it will probably end up happening at some point. Oh, God. <laughs> um, right. Um, I, I think that, that might be it. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, no, actually, you know one thing. It's a bit of a bugbear this has been for me. Um, there was a poster released earlier this week, wasn't there, Ian? That seems to have got some people's panties in a wad. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. Right. Now, the poster is for the um, upcoming um, Cameron Diaz and um, Jason Siegel film, uh, Sex Tape. Right? Uh, and what, what was people's issue with this, Ian? Right, okay, yeah, so the sex tape thing. Basically... Why is Cameron Diaz in her panties uh, and not maybe clothes and Jason Siegel's fully clothed? It's so sexist. It's so sexist. You know, I, I mean, yeah, all right, Jason Siegel, he gets his dick out whenever he can on film. And, you know, he's obviously not afraid to show off his body. You know, it's so, it's so sexist. It's so sexist. I mean, I mean, people don't, don't go to see films because sexy people are in them. People don't do that. People want to see Ron Pullman with his dick out. That's what really gets the crowds going. Fuck off. That's it. My point here, right, and this this particularly wound, fucking really wound me up, right? At no point, right, when they were doing that, because it's clearly what's happened is they've got Jason Segel and Cameron Diaz have been in a room with a photographer and they've gone, right, we're going to shoot the poster for the film, right? At no point has someone gone, Oh, Cameron, um, could you take off um, those uh, lounge pants and put on these small panties? And she's gone, I don't really want to do that. And they've gone, no, you'll fucking do it, Cameron. And she's gone, oh, okay then. You know, Cameron Diaz has made a career, a very good fucking career, out of the fact that she has very nice pins, right? Not only that, Cameron Diaz spent the first two months of this year on various talk shows around the world pimping her book, which is about people, you know, about women learning more about their body, how their body works, about how mood and all these things affect their body. And it's a very good and very intelligent book. It's not just her saying, this is my exercise regime, how great am I, I do this and I do this, I only eat this and I eat this. It's not, it's a general book about sort of working out the mentality of, of, of how you look at food, how you look at your eating patterns, and trying to kind of put some kind of relatability into it. And also, as well, Cameron Diaz will be looking at this thing, and let's be honest, Cameron Diaz's legs will sell a movie to people. It will. Yeah. People, there are people who will go and see a Cameron Diaz movie because they think that she's going to spend a lot of it in her pants, right? Now, that will make the movie money. Quite literally. Yeah, I mean that. that we'll make the movie yeah, funny. To put it in a context. I mean, that, that's the thing. Um, I, I I have. Oh, sorry. Well, sorry. Uh, to put it in a context, Cameron Diaz made a movie called Bad Teacher a couple of years ago, right? Not a great movie, is it? Right. No. That movie cost twenty million dollars to make. It made. I think it made just shy of two hundred million dollars, right? So not too bad. Do you know how much Cameron Diaz made out of that movie? Uh, like 40 million or something? 47 million dollars. 
yeah, because she yeah, took a million up front and then she took the rest of it out of the back end, out of box office and DVD. She made three million shy of what Robert Downey Jr. made for doing Iron Man 3, which is his fourth instalment as Iron Man, and basically he could have asked for whatever the fuck he wanted to. Now, yeah. it's the same director sex tape, so you could probably say that she probably has a similar deal on this as she had on Bad Teacher. So Cameron Diaz looking at that and going, do you know what? I can use this to pimp to make money off, but also when I go out and do X show, X and Y show to promote this movie, they'll mention the fact that I'm in my pants on the what is it, and then I can pimp my book that I've also got out. And I just don't fucking see the big issue. It's this thing about people automatically wanting to jump at things and go, oh, that's double standards, that's terrible. It's like, oh, fucking wind your neck in. It really, Absolutely. really fucking pissed me off. And do you know what? If you want to see Jason Segel that much without his pants on, just watch the first five minutes of uh, getting Sarah Marshall on repeat. Wear out your fucking Blu-ray, rewinding and playing if you need to see Jason Segel's legs that much. <laughs> Ran over. Pissed me off that dead fucking people. Nice. Right, uh, that was episode 58. Hope you, hope you enjoyed it. Um... And we shall speak to you next week. Cheers, guys. Cool. Bye.